Tonight we're going to be in Revelation, and uh, we are getting very close to the end. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 9, and I feel like we will actually get all the way to the end of chapter 21, down to verse 27, and so we're going to read it um, before we get started. But basically, um, I'm going to entitle this tonight, The Bride's Reward, and I'm going to show you why I I title it that way in just a few minutes, but... um, Let's read through it first and you'll see what I'm talking about. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, or on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, or in other words, its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve hundred stadia, or thirteen hundred and eighty miles roughly, Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits or 216 feet by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth uh, carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst, believes how you pronounce that. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is a t- detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you'll remember from the last few Wednesday nights that we have been talking about this new heaven and this new earth. And you remember the old heaven and the old earth, the first heaven, the first earth, what happened to it? Passed away. Burn up. It was dissolved. And now we're getting to see this new heaven and this new earth. And you might remember that 
He moved in 21 verse 1, he was talking about the new heaven and the new earth. And then in verse 2, he moves into a focus on the main city, the capital city, if you will. And he starts focusing on the dwelling place of God, the place to where we're all going to take up residence and dwell with God. But we're not taking away from the fact that there is still a new creation. There is a new heaven and there is a new earth there to explore and to enjoy and to see. But he brings his focus into the most wonderful place, the most beautiful of all this new creation. And the reason we say that is because you notice in in 21 verse 2, notice how he describes the holy city, the new Jerusalem. He says it's coming down out of heaven from God and it is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So he describes this city when he tries to help you understand what this city looks like that God dwells in. He describes it as being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now we know what that translation we know how to translate that metaphor, right? Ultimately, what's he saying here? This is the most beautiful city that you have ever seen. It is in comparison as a bride looks when she has prepared herself for her husband. And how does that bride look when she's prepared for herself herself for her husband? As as good as she can look. I mean, this is the most beautiful bride that you have ever seen. And ultimately, he is using it as a metaphor to help us understand this is the city. And notice he goes on in verse 3 and he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. So here's the next thing we understand about this city. It's the place where God Himself dwells. All right, And notice it says, He's going to dwell with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. And here's another thing about this city. He wipes away every tear from their eyes. Death is no more. Neither is mourning, crying, pain. The former things have all passed away. So and ultimately what he does is he wants to describe to you that this new heaven and new earth, and specifically this new city, is a place to where everybody wants to live right now. Right? Right now we want a place to where nothing makes you cry anymore. Nothing makes you mourn anymore. There's no death, there's no sorrow, there's no sickness, there's no pain. We all want that place right now, right? All right. This is what this place is like because all of those things have passed away. And the reason it is this way is because God Himself dwells there. And you are His people, He is their God, and because He's your God, none of this stuff will ever come to pass. The only thing that will be in this place is a place of eternal joy, eternal happiness. Um, And so that's what we're getting a description of. But then, if you were to go down to verse 9, I want you to notice, he says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now I want you to understand what I believe is actually taking place here. The last time we saw this phrase, come and I will show you something, he was showing us not a bride, but a prostitute. 
Go back with me to Revelation chapter 17 for just a moment. Revelation chapter 17 and look at verse 1. Notice what it says here. Same scenario here, okay? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said to me, Come, and I will show you the what? The judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And you remember when we studied this, he gave us the interpretation of this. He said the many waters are peoples, nations, multitudes, tongues, and the great prostitute was this world system that they wrote that she wrote on, and ultimately it represented the people indulging in all the things of the world. And I want you to notice just a few things about it, and we're seeing the judgment of it. But if you were to go over with me to verse uh, to chapter eighteen, starting in verse seven, look at chapter eighteen, verse starting in verse seven. And look what this says. It says, As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. In other words, she was so indulged in the things of this world that she found all of her happiness, all of her joy into, in the things of this world. Are y'all tracking with me? Notice some other things about her. Go down with me to verse um, verse uh, 15 through 17. He says here, The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her, again, talking about this world system, will stand far off in fear of her torment weeping and mourning aloud. And here's what they'll say, Alas, alas for the great city, that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Now let me give you the picture here. This angel brings and he shows John the world system and all of her riches and all of the things that men sought after, all of her her fine linen and fine garments and the, the fine jewels and the, she was adorned in gold and silver and all this stuff. And in a single hour, what happened to the fine, what happened to her queenship and her, and her wealth and her honor and her adorning and her jewels and what happened to it in a single hour? Laid waste. It's gone. So he says, come, I will show you the judgment of this prostitute, which again represented the world system and the people that rode on this world system. All right, is everybody tracking with me? And it was laid waste in a single hour. Now, I believe what's happening in Revelation 21 is now he's going to show, and now that John has seen the vision of the new heaven and the new, and the new Jerusalem coming down, and he's told him, now the angel is, he's only seen it coming down, and the angel told him, he said, listen, there's going to be no death, no mourning, no joy. So he's seeing it come. But now the angel steps up and says, Come, and I will show you the bride. And ultimately, I believe he's doing the same thing he did with the prostitute. Look, look at why. Look at, um, 
Revelation 21, verse 10. Notice what happened after He said, Come and I will show you. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So He carried Him away in the Spirit on a great mountain to see it, right? Go back to Revelation 17 and see what happened. In verse 3, he said, Come and I will show you the judgment of the prostitute. And what does he do in Revelation 17 verse 3? And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And again, he saw the world system. And he saw that the world system was riding on the scarlet beast, which again was the the Antichrist, Satan basically, the influence of Satan. So what I'm seeing and what I believe is happening, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think that what we're seeing in 21 is an absolute contrast to what we saw in chapter 17. Y'all see where I'm going with this? 17, we see the judgment of this world system and her adorning and all her jewels and how everybody that put their hope in it, they mourned when they saw her torment because it was laid waste in a single hour. But on the exact opposite side of that, we don't see the prostitute, but we see the bride. And we see the bride's city, the dwelling place, the the world system that that they now inherit. And it is adorned in jewels and all this, but it's not going to be laid waste in a single hour. Instead, it is going to last for how long? Forever and ever and ever. So do you see the absolute contrast between the two? And that's what we're looking at. So this is the reason why I called chapter 21 the reward of the bride. I don't believe that whenever the angel said, Come and I will show you the bride, I don't think he literally meant, Come and I will show you the peoples that are up here. I think he's doing just like the prostitute represented the multitudes and the world system that they that they were tied together in. I think that that's what he's doing right here. He's saying, Come and I will show you the bride and the system that they, that she is going to be tied together with. And so we're seeing the judgment of the prostitute in 17, and then we're seeing the reward of the bride. And how, who, how many of you know what the bride is? I mean, all throughout the Bible, who is the bride? The church, the bride of Christ, right? The, the believers, the body of Christ. And so that's what we're seeing right here. This angel comes and he says, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so then he says in verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then notice how he describes it here. It has the glory of God. Now, Notice how it describes the glory of God in the next two words. What is it? It's radiance, or what does some other translation say? If you've got a different translation, what does it say? Huh? It's brilliance. It's brilliance. It's radiance. And what is that describing? Bright, bright light, right? And so what we're seeing here is that when he looks at this, 
He sees a brightness from it, a radiance from it, that he knows that is the glory of God. Just a few other places that we see that God has always displayed His glory in light. The, the Jewish people called it the Shekinah glory. It was a light that basically no man could look at. It had to be covered and veiled in some way or a man could not, could not take it. Uh, we, we would die if we looked at it, all right? And so to see a few examples of that, hold your place here and go to Exodus chapter 13. One of the first places we actually see this at. You'll know, you'll remember this very well. Exodus chapter 13, verse 20. And we're talking about here whenever um, the children of Israel were going through the wilderness and they didn't know they were lost other than what God told them to go and directed them. And this is how He directed them. In verse 20 of Exodus chapter 13 it says, And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so that's one of the first times that we see that God displays Himself and He leads His, leads his people in light in some way. All right. Another place where we see this, Exodus chapter 33, if you'll go there with me. Exodus chapter 33, verse 20 through 23. And actually, we can start in verse 18. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 18. Moses said to God, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now notice he said, Man shall not see me and live, right? And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Now go with me to Exodus 34. We're going to skip down to where he actually sees it and what happens. In Exodus 34, beginning in verse um, 29. So after God passed by, this is what happened. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. 
Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So again, here's just a few of the pieces that we draw out of this. When we saw the glory of God in its fullness in some way, in its... um, most present form, let me say that, in its most immediate form. When you see His glory, it was always displayed as a brilliance, as a light so bright that Moses could only see the hind part. He had to be hid in the cleft of a rock just to see Him as He passed by. And even that was so much that the radiance of His face shone in such a way that a veil had to be put over his face because it scared the people that he was talking to. And so we see that there is a glory that that exhumes from God in such a way that we have never been able to experience that. Let me just give you another um, example that may help you understand a little bit of it. When God created the heavens and the earth and He created man, He created it all to display His glory, right? When the angels looked at the earth and the new creation, they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is what? Full of His glory. Filled with His glory. If that is the case, just what little information you know about the sun. And the sun is a cursed image of a display of His glory. Can you imagine what the brightness of the fullness of His glory? And the answer is no, we can't imagine it. When John describes to you the reward of the bride, it is a city that God dwells in. It is a city that has no mourning, no sorrow. God is the God of this people. It is a city of nothing but um, joy unspeakable and full of glory, as the old song says. And then when he sees it coming down from heaven, the first thing he says about it is it has the glory of God. And the way he describes it is that it has a radiance to it. It has a brilliance to it unlike anything that he has ever seen. And then he goes on to the next part and he says, it is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. And then he explains this jasper here, because jasper as we translate it today is not the same color and thing that he's trying to portray here. Actually, what he's trying to portray here would be more like a diamond, if you will. And so what we have here is something as clear as crystal, but it has a light shining through it in such a way that it radiates everything to the point that if you flip over and look at verse 23 of Revelation 21, Notice what he says here. This city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it. (laughs) Why? The glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. 
So ultimately, the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the glory of God in this dwelling is so bright, there is no need of a sun anymore. There is no need of a moon anymore because there is no night. Remember, He gave the sun to give light during the day, and He gave the moon to give light during the night. There is no need of either one of those anymore because there is such a brilliance coming through this... um, that, that it, it, how did he describe it again? Like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. We see this light coming through so bright that there is no need for anything else, any other source of light, because the glory of God lights up the entire place. And then he goes on to describe it further in verse 12. He says, it had a great high wall. Now I want you to notice something else about this wall. Skip down with me to verse 18. What does verse 18 tell us about this wall? It's also built of jasper. Now you remember, what did he say in verse 11? Jasper was what? Clear as crystal. So here we have this city that is like a rare jewel, like jasper. It is has this radiance and this brilliance shining all through it. Then it has a great high wall that also is built out of jasper. And let's see what else it tells us about it. In this wall, it has 12 gates. And at the gates, there are 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Now, there are several things that you can pick out of this. I'm not going to try to pick out different symbolisms in this like some people do because it's speculation. I'm going to go with what it says, all right? And what it says is that there are 12 gates. It goes on in the next verse to tell us there are three gates on the north side wall, three gates on the um, west side wall, three gates on the east side wall, three gates on the south side. And so ultimately we have 12 gates around this place. And then at those gates we have 12 angels standing at each gate. Now you could take this back to, do you remember... um, you remember in the Garden of Eden, whenever God set a wall up so that they could not get to the to the tree of life, and He set an angel outside of the gate coming in to make with a flaming sword to make sure that they could not get in. Well, I don't believe that's the same thing we have here because the fact of the matter is, there's nothing evil that's going to be able to come in. The Bible tells us later that the gates stay open all the time, that we can go in and out of this city basically as we please. Um, And so um, there have been some that have suggested that these angels are just there to welcome us in and to bless us as we go out. That uh, basically that's what they're there for. Now again, we don't know. All we know is that this great high wall has 12 gates, and at the gates are 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And again, I don't know for certain what that has to do with anything, but I do know that um, Israel was the chosen group, was the chosen people. I know that the Bible tells us as Christians in Romans chapter 11, I believe it is, that we were grafted into this original tree, that the church is part of Israel. And so either you are included in this group called Israel or you are not part of this. And so 
Maybe the fact that the names of Israel are on these gates or the fact that we are all welcomed in through any of these gates as we are part of Israel and that's who these gates belong to. Um, again, I'm just making a speculation there and that's all we, we can really do. But then notice in verse, um, verse 13, east has three gates, north has three gates, south has three gates, the west has three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And we're going to get into more of, how, of understanding and trying to get a better picture, a mental picture of this in a minute. But for the meantime, I want you to notice that these walls are great and high. They have gates on them that are made of a single pearl. And they talk about the gate basically going as high as the, as the building goes, as the city goes. And then we have um, these foundations, 12 foundations. And each of the foundations have the names of the 12 apostles. And there you could go back to Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it is. Let's go there for the sake of um, getting the best understanding we can of what I believe he's trying to say. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse... um, starting in verse 19. And he's talking here about Gentiles becoming no longer strangers and aliens, but becoming part of the children of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, look at what Paul says about this. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. And notice what he says next in verse 20. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together, and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's what he's talking about. Jews and Gentiles. Israel and Christians. Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens to the covenants and the promises of God. But now we are all being built together on what did he say? What foundation? The foundation of the what? Of the apostles and the prophets. And so we have Israel and Christians being built together on the foundation that the apostles laid. Jesus Christ was the cornerstone. And you remember, in a building process back then, they had a cornerstone that was the main cornerstone that was squared up. It was the perfect stone. And everything else had to fall into alignment with that stone. And then as long as the cornerstone was perfect, everything else came up perfect. And so what we have here is the Apostle Paul telling us that Jesus Christ was the cornerstone that was laid for the building. The apostles came behind Him and laid the foundation. How did they do that? They preached the gospel. They built the church. And Jews and Israel and Christians alike were built together into a building, into a temple for the dwelling place of God. I feel like, if I'm interpreting this correctly, 
that that's what's happening here when he says that these walls had 12 foundations with the apostles' names on them. Literally, are there 12 foundations? Probably. Probably so. And if it was, it was because there were 12 apostles that laid the foundation and they are the reason why. Israel has their names on the gates. The church has their name on the foundations and they are built together and they are brought into this city together. I believe that's the significance behind these verses right here. Now we move on to verse um, 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four squares. Its length is the same as its width. And you're going to find here in a minute that its length and its width and its height are all the same. So it is basically, is it a cube? I think that's what we're looking at here. And But ultimately we see that it is four squares. And that means that it's the exact same dimensions all the way around. And then he measures the city with his rod and it comes up to 12,000 stadia or that translates to 1,380 miles, basically is what that translates to. And so we basically have 1,380 miles long, 1,380 miles wide, and 1,380 miles high. And that's the, the size of just the city of the dwelling in the new creation. We're not talking about all of the new heaven and the new earth. We're talking about one city where God and His people dwell together in this city, all right? And I know um, I, I, was, I was listening to, I listened to several people. One of the person I listened to was John MacArthur, and um, he quoted a man. Let me pull this up. He quoted a man that said, um, I can't remember his name, I think Henry, Henry Morris or somebody like that. But he was a scientist, and this is what he said. He said, although there's no way to know precisely how many people will be in this city, one can make at least a somewhat accurate guess. It can be calculated, he says. He says that the total number of people who have lived between Adam's time and our time is about 40 billion. Now again, I don't know exactly how he came up with that number, but that's what he come up with. And he said... Assuming that a similar number will be born during the millennium, the thousand year reign that we've been studying about. So we got 40 billion between Adam's time and the millennium and 40 billion after that. 80 billion people, right? He says, then he says, because of the conditions allowing another 20 billion who died before or soon after death and never really populated the earth, it is reasonable that about 100 billion men, women, and children could have been members of the human race, past, present, and future. Now assume for the sake of argument that 20% of these will be saved. Including all those who die in infancy, it's obviously only a guess, but the Lord Jesus did make it plain that a large majority will never be saved. You remember when He said that? He said... Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and how many go by it? Many. He said, narrow is the way that leads to life, and how many find it? Few. So, the Lord Jesus actually indicated that 
it's not going to be a very large number of the world's population that actually will be saved. So you take that in consideration. And notice it says, <clears throat> if this figure is used, then the new Jerusalem would have to accommodate, say, 20 billion residents. Also assume that 25% of the city is used for dwelling places of the inhabitants. So mansions, you've got to have a mansion there, right? You've got to have a place to to store all of your treasures and things. Now let's say the rest is allocated to streets and parks and public buildings, etc. He says, then he figures out with some exotic calculation, and he's a scientist, that the average space assigned to each person, 20 billion, would still be over one, over 30 cubic miles per person. If 20 billion were in a city of this size, you would still, each person would have 30 cubic miles. That would be your space, your part of this city. That's if 20 billion, if he's correct on that. All right? <clears throat> and then he says, this would correspond to a cubicle block with about 75 acres on each face. Obviously, there's adequate room in the holy city for all who will be there. Another way to calculate this immense city is shared by F.W. Borum, and he shares this quite interesting in quite interesting terms. He says, now if you work it out, 1,500 cubed, you have an area of 2,250,000 square miles. The only city four square that he has ever seen is in Allidade in South Australia. The ship that brought him out from the old country called in there for a couple of days, and he thought it was a very fine city. But as you very well know, the city of Adelaide covers only one square mile. Each of the four sides is a mile long. London covers an area of 140 square miles. But this city, the city four square, is a 2,250,000 times as big as Adelaide, 15,000 times as big as London. And he goes on to make some other uh, great calculations, but you get the picture. It's big enough, plus we're not all going to be there at the same time. He said, I guess you could say since we're moving through the universe, a new heaven and a new earth, all of that is kind of silly. But it does give you some perspective so that you don't come up and ask me a question afterwards that I can't answer anyway. So anyway, um, he talks about he talks about a little bit more about the place. But again, the point being is that even at 20 billion people, you still have more than enough room for, for many people to have dwellings in this city at this size. And then he says in verse 17 here, He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So in other words, a cubit basically is from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. That's a cubit right there. It's about 18 inches, all right? And so he's saying 18 inches in a human's measurement is 18 inches in an angel's measurement. 18 inches is 18 inches. And basically he said that when he measured the wall, and now, again, he can't be talking about the height here because the city is four square. And the height is the same as the length and the width. So most scholars believe he's talking about the width of the wall, just the wall here. And so just the wall here is 216 feet. That's 144 cubits. That is also equivalent to, I think, 70-ish 
72 yards. I believe it is. You could do the math on that. But 72 yards. So think about a football field. Think about three quarters of the football field. That's how wide the wall is. Now, why is that important? Well, look what it says next in verse 18. The wall was built of jasper. The city was built of pure gold, like clear glass. And so basically what you're looking at is crystal clear like diamond all the way around this place. Walls that are uh, 75 yards thick. Uh, foundations that are 12 foundations deep that are all jasper and you can see through. It's like clear glass. Now try to picture that because look, and remember, it's brilliance coming from the glory of God, right? But let's keep looking at what we're going to see in this. In verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper or a diamond. The second was sapphire, or a very, very beautiful blue color. The third was a gate, or a sky blue color. The fourth was an emerald, a bright green. The fifth was a onyx, or red and white colored. The sixth was a uh, carnelian, or this is a red quartz colored. Um, the seventh is a chrysolite, gold or yellow colored. Um, the eighth is beryl, it's a sea green. The ninth is topaz. It's a yellow green. The tenth is a chrysophase. It's another shade of green. The eleventh is a jacinth or a violet color. The twelfth is an amethyst or a purple color. And so if you have all of these jewels that adorn the foundations and they're all clear and you have this radiant light that goes through all of them, what do you think you're seeing in all of this place? How many people ever see a rainbow outside? And what's the first thing you do? Try to find where the end is. But, I mean, you think about it. There's something about just seeing something with all the mixture of colors. Now, if you have coming from the throne this radiant glory and it shines through all of these jewels and all of these 75-yard walls, and they stretch so many miles high, 1,380 miles high, 1,380. The whole place is lit up by all of these different... This is the greatest light show. You ain't never seen a fireworks show. You've never seen a laser show. You've never seen anything like you will see in this city. And that's what John is trying to describe. He's trying to explain to you that it had a brilliance to it like nothing you have ever seen in all of your life. And then keep going with me in verse um, 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Now remember, this gate is 1,380 miles high. There's three of them along a wall that is 1,380 miles long. And yet this gate is made out of a single pearl. And I don't have time to talk about a pearl. You go home and look at how a pearl is made and you look at the significance of, of this and do a little study on that yourself. Yeah, that's right. That didn't come from no oysters. That's right. And then he says next, 
And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And so ultimately, again, everywhere you look, everywhere you see, all you see are these most beautiful, dazzling, and radiant colors just exhuming from the, um, from the glory of God as it blasts through all of these walls and all of these foundations and, and all of the streets and everywhere you go, all you see is the glory of God in this particular city. You've never seen anything like it. <clears throat> I don't have time to go no further, do I? No. All right, so um, next week we will pick up with the, um, with the temple. And uh, just a little, little note about that, there is no temple. So we're going to look at why there's no temple next week and see a little bit more about this city. But again, this is the reward of the bride. You saw the punishment or the judgment of the prostitute in Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 21, you get to see the reward or the, the, the riches of the bride. And notice as you study both of them, if you go back and read it, the difference between the two. The prostitute was adorned with jewels and riches and, and a great city, but what happened to it? In a single hour, laid waste. On the other hand, the bride is now adorned with all of this great city, with all of the jewels and all of the, the riches of it, uh, the streets of gold, and yet, it is not going to be laid waste in a single hour, but it, and it's not going to be weeping and wailing and tormented, but instead it is going to last forever and ever and ever. And so that's the difference. That's how I believe we are supposed to interpret Revelation chapter 21. Um, I'm not saying I'm right in that, but I do believe that that's what's happening, and I do believe that's what's going on. All right, any comments tonight? Yeah. <laughs> you think somebody's trying to take some of that gravel out? <laughs> it may have been. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I just can't imagine it. You know, I love, we went on that motorcycle trip this weekend. We was in the mountains and we saw, I mean, we just, just beautiful ride. We stopped on an old back road for probably probably 45 minutes, just parked their bikes in the middle of the lane, um, a main highway. Not a single car ever come by. We never heard a single voice. We never heard a motor. We never heard. We just sit there uh, just looking out over the mountain, over the valley, and um, for 45 minutes, and it was just beautiful. And that's a cursed creation. Can you imagine what we're going to be able to explore and see and the things that will display God's glory in the new creation that has no curse whatsoever. Hmm. That's right. It's impossible to me. And that's what Paul said. He said, no eye hath seen, no ear hath heard. He said, it's never even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Uh, you can't imagine. But John tries to give you a glimpse of it, and the only way he can even describe it to you is in human terms. <laughs> and he does the best he can to just give you a glimpse of the reward for those that are part of the bride. 
That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Anything else? All right. Well, thank you for your time and attention. Like I said, we'll come back next week and um, look at the uh, the temple in this um, in this new new Jerusalem, new dwelling place of God. All right. Let's close in a word of prayer, and you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much, God, for Lord just showing us the things that must take place soon. Father, I thank you, God, that. Um, Lord, that we are part of the bride. Father, not because of um, anything we've done, but because of the foundation that the apostles have laid and the, the foundation that we're being built on. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that because Christ is the cornerstone and we're building our lives in alignment with Him, Father, we're building a dwelling place for you. Father, I thank you so much, God, that um, uh, Lord, we're one day going to experience this firsthand. And Father, I just pray, God, that... Um, Lord, you would help us to, to long for this. Father, to have a such a desire for it that nothing in this world can satisfy. Lord, all it can do is point us to what's coming, point us to what you've promised. Father, I pray that all the tears, all the mourning, all the death, all the sickness, all the sorrow, Father, I pray that all it does in our lives is increases our hope for this world where none of that will be no more. And Father, I pray, God, that we are eagerly waiting Father, we are eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Well, Father, you said through the Apostle Paul that we are saved in that hope. And Father, I pray, God, that you would increase our hope in these things day after day after day. And Father, I hate that it takes the curse of this world to do it. But God, I thank you. I thank you, God, that you're increasing our hope. Lord, that you help us to long more and more for that city that you have prepared for us. And Father, we thank you so much again for your word, for everything that you do for us. And Father, just for the, the hope that you instill in us, Father. Lord, we love you. We praise you for everything that you are. And Father, we ask you for these things in Jesus' name.